You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Genesis 45 is where you need to be. And if, if you wouldn't mind maybe scrunching in, if you've got any room on the outside of your, or the inside of your aisle, we've got a lot of people trying to make their way in and are going to be looking for some seats. And so if you'll, if you'll maybe move in just a little bit and open up a, a spot or two on the outside. We're going to have to start giving like prizes for getting here on time, aren't we? (laughs) Okay, Genesis 45. If there is one thing that I am certain of in this world, if there's one, it's this, that, that suffering is certain. We all agree with that. I love what Augustine said, that God had one son without sin, but not a single one without suffering. And it is, it is a fact of life in a broken and fallen world. You need to know that, that suffering is a certainty. Two weeks ago, after uh, we preached one of our sermons on, uh, on the sovereignty of God over suffering, that, that whole idea, um, got to pray with um, a mom and a daughter who, uh, the, the mom's other daughter and, and this daughter's sister uh, just found out that she had several brain tumors um, all throughout her brain. Just, I mean, devastating news. We had another uh, family in our church who last week found out that, the lady did, found out that her dad has uh, several brain tumors that have just appeared and the doctors have labeled those terminal, right? Um, this la- well, tomorrow I'm about to do a funeral for a man who was hunting last week and uh, flipped his ATV on top of himself and killed himself. I mean, there's a million ways for this to happen, right? But this is what you call life in a broken and fallen world. And here's the truth for you and for me. None of us are going to escape that. You're not going to escape that. I'm not going to escape that. We're all going to have the scars of suffering and the scars of living in a broken and fallen world. You're going to have those scars. I'm going to have those scars, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to preach through Genesis chapter 37 through 50, the life of Joseph. And we've said this from day one, that the purpose of this story is to remind Israel back then and and the church now, you and I now, that God can be trusted even in the dark, that God can actually be trusted If you want to know one of the primary reasons why we're preaching through this story, it is because we actually want you and us and our church family to be a group of people who actually trust God in the midst of suffering, who actually start to view God and see God as trustworthy, even in in these moments where it feels like the floor is just falling out from underneath us, that we are people who are trusting God in that moment. And we've said this over and over, that some of the hardest things to believe about God in the midst of suffering is that God is both with us and for us. A few weeks ago, we addressed the whole uh, God being with us question in Genesis chapter 39, where where the Bible is making it really clear that God was with Joseph. And a couple of weeks ago, we started to address, and we're going to finish up this morning, this idea of God being for us in our suffering. That God is actually working for our good and his glory in the midst of our suffering. But, but here's the point. We want God to be trustworthy to you and I. We want to have a realizing sense that when we're in the middle of dark seasons of suffering, that we have a perfectly good and wise father who can be trusted. Okay, now, if you want a, the, one of the clearest pictures of the Bible of just evidence and proof that God can be trusted— Even in the darkest of moments, Genesis 45 is it. So let me read this again for you. Genesis 45, starting in verse 4, says this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. Genesis 45, verse 4. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. And and they sold him there. It was them that that did it. So so why, why should they not be angry and distressed? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors, so that it was not you who sent me here, but God who sent me here. 
He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I mean, isn't it interesting? In verse 4, it's the brothers did this. But in verse 5, 7, and 8, three times Joseph says, well, in, in reality, it's not, it's not you who did this. You, you don't have to be distressed or angry at yourself because it's actually God who did this. The story of Joseph is a storied presentation of providence. This is what the story of Joseph is primarily about. And here's how we define providence. Providence is God's constant care for and his absolute rule over all of his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. That God is actually caring for and ruling over all of his creation, twisting and turning everything that happens in our lives for his glory and our good. This is what providence means. If you want the story of Joseph summed up in a single verse, it's Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, selling me into slavery. All of these things that you did in sinning against me, you meant it as evil against me, but God meant that same evil, your evil for good, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is what providence means. God's constant rule over, care for, all of his creation for his glory and, and their good. Now, if we're going to trust God in the midst of suffering, if we're actually going to trust him, we're going to have to get our soul soaked in a vision of God that, that is providential. I mean, our soul is going to have to be soaked in that. And so this is what we started working through a couple of weeks ago, that part of what providence means, pr part of what it answers for us is this question of, can God actually care for us? See, if, if we're going to be a people who trust God in the midst of suffering, there's actually two or three smaller questions that we're going to have to answer about God. Providence answers all of them. First one is, can, can God actually care for us? Does he have the ability? This is the question of God's sovereignty. Does God have the ability to care for us? And two weeks ago, we showed that providence teaches us from the Bible that God is sovereign. That, that God actually rules over all of creation everything, that nothing happens in your life or my life or in the world apart from it passing through the hand of God. Nothing does. It either happens by his direct, like direction, or by his permission. But all things pass through the hand of God before they happen. Nothing passes into your life apart from it passing through the hand of God. So God is sovereign over everything. Everything. This is what we're seeing in Genesis 45. His brothers meant evil against him, but God turned and twisted that evil. He's sovereign. He can do that. Turned and twisted that evil for their good, for, for Joseph's good. That God overruled their intention, the brother's intention in the act, to accomplish his intention through the act. This is what it means for God to be providential and sovereign over our suffering. Is that there's never going to be a moment of suffering that passes into your life apart from it passing through the hand of God. And God promises, because he's sovereign, to turn it for, his, for your good and his glory. The God is sovereign over suffering. Can God care for you? Providence says yes. Does God care for you? That's the second question. If, if we're going to trust God in the midst of suffering, we're going to have to come to deal with this question. Does God care for us? This isn't a question of sovereignty. It's a question of God's love of us. Care for us. Does God actually care for us? It's a question of the goodness of God. And providence tells us that God does care for us, that God loves us, that if you're in Christ, God has pledged himself to be a perfect father for you. So parents in the room, think about how you feel about your kids for a second, how you feel about them. You know what that's meant to show you? That's meant to be just a faint reflection of God's fatherly care of you. You know that? I mean, think about how much you care for your kids. That is God's fatherly care and love for you. If you want the proof of God's love for you, all you have to do is look to the cross. Amen? The cross is where we see that God was willing to abandon Jesus, his son, to adopt you as sons and daughters. That's how much God cares for you. Okay, this is the picture of God's love for you, his fatherly affection for you. And, and just think about the story of Joseph for a minute here. The story of Joseph is a clear example of God's care for his sons and daughters. When you read the story of Joseph, it is really, it is much, it's much more entertaining to read this story about Joseph than it would be to live it. Amen? 
This is not a story that you want to live. It's not one that you would choose. But isn't it interesting when you read the story, when you can see the end of the story from the beginning, when you know how the story turns out, it is so easy to see that in every detail of the story, God is expressing his love to Joseph. Even when he's in a pit, even when he's sold into slavery, even when he's falsely accused and thrown into prison, God is in every one of those details expressing his love to Joseph. But let this be a warning to you. Let this be a warning. See, when it's you in the prison and it's you in the pit, it's a little bit more difficult to see God's fatherly affection, isn't it? So, so let this be a warning that when it's your turn in the prison, your turn in the pit, you are very apt and very prone to see God through the dark lenses of your circumstances rather than seeing your circumstances through the bright lens of the character of God. You're very prone to that. You need to be aware of that. That it's very easy when we look at the, the life of Joseph to see God's fatherly affection for him. But when you're in the prison, when you're sitting next to Joseph, it's a much more difficult in that moment to see it. So you need to be reminding your soul that, asking God to give you a realizing sense of that. So, so this is the story. Providence teaches us, the story of Joseph teaches us that God is affectionate for his sons and daughters. God loves his sons and daughters. God does care for you. But there's a third question. This is the one we're going to try to answer this morning. If we're going to actually trust God in seasons of suffering, we're going to have to get this question ingrained deeply into our soul, an answer to this question. Not just can God care for us or does God care for us, but this third question is does God know how to care for us? See, this isn't a question of the sovereignty of God or the goodness of God. This is a question of the wisdom of God. It's a question that just says this, does God actually know what he's doing? Have you ever asked that in the middle of suffering in your life? I mean, does God actually know what he's doing right now? How could God know what he's doing if I'm where I am? I mean, I bet you Joseph asked that a time or two, don't you? Falsely accused, years in prison. How could God know what he's doing if I'm here? And here's what providence, and specifically this story of Joseph is going to show us, that God actually does know what he's doing. See, it's not enough to know that God is sovereign and that God has good intentions. There's people who are very powerful in this world and have good intentions who use their good intentions and their power and make a mess out of life, don't they? So, so good intentions and power are not enough. We need to have a God who is powerful, all-powerful, has great intentions and desires our good and actually has the wisdom to accomplish it. Amen? And providence, this story of Joseph is going to show us that God has all three of those. So providence and the wisdom of God. I want to dig into this and just show you what, what wisdom is and, and what, the, what the Bible says about wisdom and God. So wisdom, what, what is wisdom? When we're talking about wisdom and the providence of God, what, what is wisdom? Generally speaking, wisdom is the ability... To see the, the right outcome, like to look down the road and see what, where you want to be and, and where we need to get, and it's the ability to know the best means to get to that outcome. This is wisdom. N knowing the right place to go and the best means to get there. That, that's wisdom. Okay, now the Bible is really passionate about trying to convince us that God is perfectly wise. Perfectly wise. That God actually knows where we need to be and where the world needs to be and God actually knows the best way to get the world there and you there and me there. That God is perfectly wise in this way. This will be up on the screen for you, but at the end of Romans chapter 11, this is after Paul has unpacked God's plan of redemption for men and women through Jesus. After God has, or Paul has unpacked that, th this is Paul's, it's written over this little section of the scripture. If you've got an ESV, we'll say doxology. It's Paul's glory statement. He breaks out into song and singing as he's worshiping God. And this is what he says about God after he has just walked through the, the plan of God to redeem men and women. He says this in Romans 11, starting in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So this is a passage talking about the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And here's what Paul's saying about it. You want to talk about the, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God? Here's what you need to know about it. It is rich. And the riches of his wisdom runs really, really deep. The, the, the depths of God's wisdom and riches are unbelievable. This is what Paul's saying here. He goes on. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I love how the NIV puts it. It says that that his ways are beyond tracing out. That there is no way your mind can comprehend the ways of God. That they're beyond beyond you, you tracing. They're beyond you knowing. They're beyond your comprehension. He goes on in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's a rhetorical question. Paul's just trying to remind you that God doesn't need your counsel. You need his. You you know that about life? That that God has never, ever asked someone for counsel. That that there's never been a point where God has needed more clarity upon a situation. There's never been a point where God's had to stop and pray about it. Right? There's never been that point. He is perfect in wisdom. He knows where we need to go, and he knows the exact way to get us there in every situation. I love how Isaiah chapter 55 puts it. This will be on the screen for you as well. Isaiah says it this way. For my thoughts, speaking from God's perspective, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's just trying to show us the difference between he and us. When it comes to wisdom, none of us are born with it. And if you need living proof of that, have babies, right? (laughs) Babies are not born with wisdom. That's something they have to grow in. We've got a four, two, and a one-year-old, and we know that around our house. I love our kids, but here's the problem. If we left them alone literally for two days, they're all dead, right? They they don't have wisdom yet. They're still growing in wisdom. And and if you want proof of that, just go to a two-year-old and try to explain to them what it's going to require for them to get into college. Here's the problem. It is beyond their ability to comprehend what you're even talking about with college. They, They don't have any sort of a framework to even deal with that. Okay, now, the next time you go up to a two-year-old and you try to explain to them college, you need to ask God to remind you that you're a two-year-old in his presence. This is what Isaiah is talking about. When it says that, that his ways and his thoughts are higher than your ways and your thoughts, it's just saying, listen, you're a two-year-old in the presence of God. I am. But we don't have a mind with the mental capacity to comprehend all that God's doing in the world. That his ways are higher than our ways. That that he is perfect in his wisdom. That that he knows the the best ends. He knows perfectly how to get to the best ends. And you and I don't. This is the wisdom of God. Now, let's take this wisdom of God and apply it to suffering. The wisdom of God and suffering. And and we're about to walk into what I would call some dangerous waters. When when we start trying to address the why question. And, And first of all, it's dangerous. Because here's the thing. In the room this morning, if you have... If a season of suffering has just broken into your life, the most beneficial questions for you to ask are not why questions, but who questions. The most beneficial thing for you to know is not why, the whys of suffering, it's the who of suffering. It's that God is with you in the midst of it. That's the most important thing for you to know this morning. And when you start trying to go down the the mental, kind of tracing out God pathway, it can lead to some really dangerous and dark places for you. So so if that's you this morning, if suffering is just broken into your life, I I just want to remind you of this, that that God is with you. That according to Hebrews chapter 2 and this this story of Joseph, God can look at you and say, I know right now what you're feeling. That that God is with you in that sort of a way. And for all of us, as we go through seasons of suffering, there are moments in our life where we start to hopefully humbly begin to ask God for clarity on what it is that he's doing in the midst of this. And here's the thing, when we start asking that question why, I just want to remind you of this. There are some things that we can know about that question why, but there are a million things that we will never know as to the why. Like, in other words, God in any specific situation in our life is working in that situation from a million different angles, and you're never going to know all the million of them. But but here is the good thing about the Bible and about God, is he has revealed to us some of what he's doing in the midst of our suffering. He has clearly shown us in the Bible some of what he's doing. That that we can take like with rock-solid confidence that this is what God is doing right now in this moment. 
So, so there are some things to know. And we see this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and Genesis chapter 45, where all of this suffering has happened to Joseph. And here's what Joseph says about that suffering, that God is actually working for good in it. That God actually has something that he's doing for his glory and our good. That God is actually using suffering in this world to accomplish good things in this world. That God is doing that. So when you think about that word good, it's interesting. In a very similar context, it shows up again in the New Testament. In a verse that many of you would be really familiar with, Romans 8, 28. This is going to be on the screen for you. So just like in Genesis 50, 20, the word good is used to describe this suffering. So we have it again in, in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28, we've got this statement from Paul. And we know that for those who love God, all things, I want to point out just two phrases for you. This is one, all things work together for, and here's the next one, good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, now when when you get to that word, all things, that actually means all things. That actually means everything in your life, both painful and pleasurable, All means all. Every single event, every detail of your life, every moment, every circumstance, every event, that is the all in Romans 8.28. That all things work for the good of those who who love God and are called according to his purpose. And you see the word good there. That good is the second word. That is a massively important word. That God is saying, I have determined— in my sovereignty and in my goodness towards you, and I actually have the wisdom to pull this off, that I promise to twist every trial for my people into good. Every trial. Now, here is the problem we have with this word good. And this is the problem in this room this morning. Is for a lot of us right now, our definition of good differs from God's definition of good. Amen? This is one of our persistent problems in life. And when our definition of good differs from God's definition of good, and typically that's going to show itself in a season of suffering, when our definitions differ, it has a way of troubling our trouble, of complicating our suffering. So let me just let the cat out of the bag here. When God says he's going to twist your suffering for good and trials for good, that does not mean to give you the American dream. That does not mean to give you abundant provision. That does not mean to give you a fat bank account. That does not mean to give you a long life. That does not mean to give you a comfortable life. That does not mean that you'll never experience loss. That does not mean that you're going to have a pain-free life. That is not how God is defining good here. Can we all see that? I mean, there needs to be clarity on this this morning. When God says good, that is not what he means. Okay, so I want to give you three things I think you can take to the bank with rock-solid confidence on what it is that God, God's, God means here. Like when God says good, what does he mean by that? In, in Genesis chapter 50, when, when Joseph is going to say, all of this evil that you meant for bad toward me, well, what does it mean when, God says, when Joseph says, but, but God meant it for good? What is that good? Let me give you three things here. And there's a lot more we could say, but, but here are three things that you can know about it. What does God mean when he says good? Here's the first. The first way that God uses suffering for good is that God uses suffering to make us Christ-like. God uses trials to transform us. This is one of the things God does in the midst of our suffering. Okay, now I want you to, just to recall the back end of Romans 8.28. So in Romans 8.28, we are linked up with this idea of God twisting our trials for our good. But Romans 8.29 defines and shows and clarifies what that good is. So in Romans 8.28, all things work for the good. You have that passage roll out. And then here's verse 29. Here's the definition, the clarification of what good is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? What is the good? To be conformed to the image of his son. That is good. When God thinks about your life, here's one of his primary, like at the top of the list, things that he is doing in you. He is conforming you to the image of Jesus. That's at the top end of his list. He wants you to actually look like Jesus. And in the hands of God, trials become transforming in that way to conform us into the image of Jesus. Now, let me try to work through maybe three ways that trials do this. That suffering, that in the hands of God, suffering produces this in our life. Three ways. 
Number one, way number one, is God uses suffering to prove us. God uses suffering to prove us. And this is like directly out of, of 1 Peter um, chapter 1, 6 and 7, where um, Peter's going to say, you can rejoice in the midst of suffering, and here's why. Because God is using that suffering to test you like gold, to refine you, to, to prove you. See, when, when you become a Christian, here's what happens in that moment. There is a moment in your life where you say, God, my allegiance is to you and you alone. I love you above every other thing. Okay, that's the moment that a person becomes a Christian. When they give their heart and life and soul to Jesus like that. that that's the moment God saves you. But here's the problem in that moment. Although you're expressing to God, God, my allegiance is to you and you alone. Can we just be real? Your allegiance is not to God and God alone. You've got a million mixed allegiances inside of you. And here is what God, in the hands of God, here is what suffering and trials do. They form the heat under our life to bring our life to a boil so the mixture can be divided. So all of our divided allegiances can be seen. Like picture, picture the moment you become a Christian as gold mixed with a lot of impurities. Trials are the thing that God uses to heat up our life to separate the gold from the dross. See, this is what trials do. In the, in the midst of suffering, here's what every Christian should be able to see. Thing number one they should be able to see is, wow, there's like authentic faith, pure gold in there. I'm seeing that in me, pure faith. But here's the second thing every Christian will be able to see. Wow, there is a lot of dross in me. There's a lot of mixed allegiances in me. There are things about you that you will only see when God heats your life up with trials, trouble, and tribulation. Are you hearing that? There are things about you that you will only know about you when you are squeezed by suffering. Suffering has a unique ability. Prosperity cannot do this for you. Suffering has a unique ability to cut to the core of your heart, to show you what you really believe, for you to see your own hypocrisy, for you to see your own unbelief. Suffering has a way of cutting to the core of your heart like no other thing can do. See, in this way, suffering proves us. But, but the second thing that suffering does is it purifies us. It purifies us. In the hands of God, suffering becomes this purifying agent. Suffering is designed by God to show us, maybe you can think of it this way, suffering is designed by God to show us our idols and then to shift our hope away from idols back onto God. Now, now let's be clear what an idol is. It's not just some statue that you'd put up in your home. An idol is anything right now in your life that you're building your life on other than Jesus. An idol is anything right now in your life that you are looking to for satisfaction and happiness. Idolatry is anything in your life right now that you're looking to for approval, that you're looking to for your significance in life, basing your significance on. It's anything right now that you're looking to in your life that you are banking your security on. What's going to make you okay? What's going to protect you? It's anything other than Jesus that you have placed your hope in. That's idolatry. And suffering has this way of showing you your idolatry. And in the hands of God, suffering serves to move our hope from idols back onto Jesus. I, I love how one pastor illustrated this. He used an illustration of some birds and some lumberjacks. So these birds were trying to build their nest in the top of these trees that these lumberjacks were about to cut down. And so rather than cutting down these trees and killing the birds, the lumberjacks got the blunt end of their axe and they started hitting the tree, started shaking the tree. And it shook it hard enough where the birds had to, to, to leave their nest and try to rebuild somewhere else. But, but the birds, rather than, than, than flying off, would just go to the next tree and try to rebuild their nest there. And the lumberjacks would come with their blunt axes, the blunt side of their axe again, start shaking the tree again. And, and they would leave that nest and they would start building the nest in the tree beside them. And they would hit that nest, start shaking that tree. And they would leave there and go to the nest beside. And finally, after shaking tree after tree after tree, the bird finally stopped trying to build his nest in the tree and flew up to the highest place he could see and built his nest in the rock. Now, let that be an illustration for us. That every tree we are trying to build 
a nest in, a life in, other than Jesus, listen, it's a falling tree. It's a falling tree. And suffering in the hands of God is used to show us that kids, building your life on kids, that's a falling tree. But building your life on a marriage is a falling tree. Building your life on a job, that's a falling tree. Putting your hope in the approval of people, that's a falling tree. Building your hope in the security that a big bank account can give you, that's a falling tree. Amen? That there's only one sure rock, and his name is Jesus. Think about your life right now. Can you tell me what in your life is secure other than Jesus? I mean, can, can you tell me anything in your life that's a guarantee other than Jesus? everything's a falling tree. And here's the problem with us right now in the room. There are so many of us right now who are building our nest at the top of trees that are crumbling and falling. And, and for many of us in the room right now, the only way God can get us to get our nest out of those falling trees is to shake us by suffering. So this is what God does with suffering shows us the inadequacy of all other idols and how adequate he is to build our life on. So in, in this way, suffering purifies us. But it does even more than that. It proves, it purifies, and, and here is, a, you can take this to the bank reality about suffering, is that God uses suffering to prepare us. Amen? This is one of the things God does in suffering. That suffering by itself, now, now listen to this, Suffering by itself has the ability to ruin you. But suffering mixed with a deep trust in the sovereignty, the goodness, and the wisdom of God has the potential to make you into something great. Listen, our hope is not in suffering. Our hope is in the sculptor who uses suffering to make us into things, right? That, that's our hope. And God uses suffering to shape us and to fashion us into things that are great. Maybe you could say it this way. If you're honest right now, there are things in your life right now that you hate about you. There are things right now that you hate about you. And suffering is God's primary means of taking that out of you. That those things that continually nag at you, those persistent areas of sin and unbelief, one of God's primary means of taking those out of you is by using suffering to show you how wonderful Jesus is. Maybe you could think of it this way. What God wants to do in and with your life, it just might require a new you, and suffering is the way for God to give you a new you. To prepare you, to make you into a new you. You see this in Joseph, don't you? So I want you to think about Joseph and the story of Joseph, his brothers, his family, and how God used suffering to prepare them. How God used suffering to begin to make them into something great. So, so just think about this in the story of Joseph. When, when we meet Joseph and his family in Genesis 37, they are as dysfunctional as any dysfunctional family can be. Brothers wanting to kill brothers, a, a, a father that has favored his son, Joseph who is probably prideful and arrogant at being favored by his father. You've got a very dysfunctional family. But here's how God uses suffering for this family's good. God uses suffering for, for his people like this. The pride of Joseph in Genesis 37 was dealt with through suffering, wasn't it? The envy of Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37 was dealt with through suffering. The ignorance and idolatry of Jacob the father was dealt with through suffering. The wisdom that Joseph needed to do all that God had called him to do in Egypt, that was gained and gotten through suffering. Are we seeing that? That, that before God could actually exalt and use Joseph like he wanted to, he had to first humble and prepare Joseph through suffering. And you see this pattern throughout the Bible, don't you? Moses spent a third of his life next to nowhere to prepare him for what God wanted to do with him. David spent a big part of his life on the run from Saul to prepare him to be king. This is a pattern you see throughout the Bible. This, this whole thing that you see, this pattern led A.W. Tozer to say what I think is just one of the most remarkable statements about how God uses suffering. 
He says that it's doubtful whether God can use a man greatly before God has hurt that man deeply. And there's truth in that. That if we want to be used by God in great ways, typically, generally speaking, it requires God to hurt us deeply, to humble us in an effort to prepare us for what he wants to do with us. And here is the good news about how God uses suffering, is that he is precise with it. Surgical precision. God knows exactly where he wants you to be, Christ-like, conformity to Jesus. And he knows the exact way to get you there. So your plan, your life, and all the things that come into it, pleasurable and painful, have been tailor-made by God for your conformity to Jesus. No wasted motion. There's not one wasted event in your life. Not one wasted moment of suffering in your life. Every one of those God sovereignly being good to you and wisely is using to get you where he would have you to go. This is why Joseph can say, this is why Paul in Romans 8 can say, God can actually twist our trouble into good. Because God uses it for, the, for our conformity to Jesus, to produce in us Christ-likeness. Here's the second one. God also uses suffering for the good of others. That if you want to know why God can call suffering good, it's not that suffering is good, by the way. It's that we can look at suffering as good because of what God is doing in it, right? So if you want to know why that is, it's because God uses our suffering for other people. And listen, this is so true in the story of Joseph, isn't it? In Genesis 50, 20, you've got this remarkable statement where Joseph says, As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here is how it's defined in Genesis 50, verse 20, as good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. The saving of many people. That God used Joseph's suffering to save people. He used it for other people. And one of the reasons I think Genesis 50 verse 20 is so remarkable is you see like in this moment Joseph recognizing that the small story of his life and his suffering isn't the end of the game. That there is a bigger story that his smaller story fits into. That his small story of sin and suffering all of his life is actually a part of God's bigger story of redemption and rescue. That Joseph had this moment in his life where he's realizing that his story actually serves the larger story of God. And man, may God give us the grace to see our life that way. That, That even when you can't connect the dots, that your small story, when it includes suffering, is actually being plugged into God's larger story of redemption. And if you want a clear New Testament picture of this, Colossians chapter 1, I think, has one of the most breathtaking views of suffering in the Bible. It'll be on the screen for you. In Colossians 1, verse 24, Paul says this about suffering. He says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. So in my flesh, listen to what he says. Here's the reason he rejoices. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. He says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So when he says Christ's afflictions in in Colossians 1.24, he is talking about Jesus suffering for our sin on the cross. So let me clarify what he is saying when he is saying there's something lacking about those. He is not saying that we need more than Jesus on the cross to be made right with God. That's not what he's saying. Jesus on the cross is everything we need to be right with God. Everything. It lacks nothing in that way. So when he says that there's something lacking in the afflictions of Christ, here's what he's saying. That people today weren't alive 2,000 years ago. They didn't see the cross. It's not real to them. And your suffering as a Christian is what fills up, what makes the suffering of Christ real to people today. It's what makes it tangible for people today. It's what makes Jesus look desirable for people today. I love this story that Jay, um, that, that Jay Oswald Sanders, he, he says about this missionary in India, an indigenous missionary. He's w- walking from village to village. And one day after walking a ton of miles, he, he's discouraged and halfway depressed. And he comes into this village and he tries to share the gospel and he is ridiculed and mocked. So he discouraged, walks out of the village, sits down under a tree and falls asleep, just exhausted. And when he wakes up, the whole village has come around him. 
and, and he's trying to figure out what's gone on. And the leader of the village said, when, when you fell asleep, we came over to look at you. And, and when we were looking at you, we saw these blisters on your feet from walking to us. And when we saw that, we realized you must be a holy man and that we were evil to reject you. So we would love to hear about what you have suffered so well to, to tell us. Listen, this is what Paul's talking about in Colossians 1. That it's when people see the suffering of God's people, that, they, that we actually gain a hearing about what God has done through Jesus. This is how it works. Maybe you could think of it this way. Let me just kind of press this down over you. That in your darkest seasons of suffering in your life, provide you with the greatest and most unique opportunities to show how valuable, how worthy, and how precious Jesus really is. Can I just tell you that no one is impressed when you praise God because your life is going well? No one is. That, that gains no second look from anyone. Why, why wouldn't they praise God? Their life is going well. But when your life is crumbling around you and like Job, you can sit in ashes and worship, that's what gains you a 1 Peter 3.15 hearing when people start asking, what in the world is it that they're hoping in? See, suffering provides you a unique opportunity. Couple right now that your marriage is extremely difficult. Can I tell you this? that you have right now one of the greatest opportunities that you will ever have to show people that your hope is not in a perfect marriage, but in a perfect Savior. For those right now who your health is crumbling, can I tell you what you have a unique opportunity to do right now? To show people that your hope is not in your health, but your hope is in a perfect, wise Savior. People in difficult relationships, you've been sinned against. Can, can I just tell you what, what you have a, a unique opportunity to do right now? is to show people that your hope is not in how people treat you. Your hope is not in people being nice to you. Your hope is not in pe people you know, treating you not, it's not in that. That your hope is in a perfect savior. See, that is how we make Jesus actually appear valuable. It's how we make Jesus actually tangible. It's how we fill up what's lacking at the cross, that people can't see it. And so they see it when the people of God suffer, showing Jesus is supremely valuable. That's how they see it. And let this be an encouragement to those of us today who we are in the grip of grief over suffering. That this is one of God's privileges and unique opportunities to you to show the world how valuable Jesus is. And number three, and then we're going to land the plane here. Third way or third reason that God can say that suffering is meant for good, that, that I can actually twist trials and twist troubles and I can call what I do with them good. Here's the third one. Is that God uses our suffering to increase our eternal capacity for God. Now buckle up here because I really want you to see what the Bible is about to teach. That God uses suffering to increase our eternal capacity for God. Can I ask you a question? Do you really believe that you're going to live with God forever in heaven if you're in Jesus? Do you really believe that? Because here's the truth. Can I, can I, just, here's the truth for many of our lives. Our lives show that we really don't. And so maybe we could just stop and pray just for a second that God would give us eyes for eternity. That God would give us eyes for what's to come that we would be living for the line of eternity rather than the dot of this life, that God would give us eyes for that. Now, in Romans chapter 8, the Bible is clear that when we um, meet God, that our experience with God will be so deep that it will, will overwhelm every experience of trials and trouble and grief on this planet. It will overwhelm them. It, it will make them seem light and momentary. It will make them seem insignificant. That this is what the Bible teaches us. You need to know that. that it, it, the Bible in Romans 8 is going to say that, that your suffering when you get to eternity is going to seem light. I, I love how one uh, person said it, that the most miserable earthly life will look like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. That's what it's going to feel like in eternity. But the Bible says more than that. 
Okay, now I want you to get the more than that that the Bible is about to teach you. Here is the more than that. That the Bible not only says that eternity is going to overwhelm all your suffering, the Bible says that in eternity, your suffering will be turned into joy. Okay, this is what the Bible is going to teach us. Now, it's going to be up on the screen for you, 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to give you two places the Bible teaches this. I could give you more, but here's two. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, For this light momentary affliction, and if you know the life of Paul, <coughs> I doubt you would call it light, Right? So he says this, for this light momentary affliction, and I want you to see this phrase, is preparing for us. Preparing. Pre- that word is key. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Okay, that word preparing is saying something. It is saying that God is using our suffering to prepare something for us down the road in eternity. Suffering now prepares for us more joy later. 2 Corinthians 4. Let me give you another place where Jesus teaches this. This is Matthew chapter 5. Verse 11 says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. How can Jesus say that? Blessed are you when that happens? How can he say that? Here's why. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Because Here's why. For great is your reward in heaven. Suffering now, more joy later. The Bible is promising us to turn our suffering now, our tears now, into joy later. Okay, this this is the teaching of the Bible. So let me try to make sense of this for you. I'm going to do it with an illustration. I've used this once before. Um, Maybe this will help. It's imperfect, but I hope helpful. So if you can picture yourself as a sports fan. Now some of you, that's going to be a stretch, but work with me here. So if you can picture yourself as a sports fan and you are rooting for the worst team of all teams. This team is terrible. They don't win. They've never won. It is that team that that you are, I mean, you are like the real deal fan that sticks in with them when no one else is. They are bad. They've always been bad. Maybe we could use the Cowboys as an illustration. I don't know. (laughs) But you get the point here. Now, uh, Now imagine all of a sudden your team starts to win. And uh, your team just won the game to get to the Super Bowl. And you buy a ticket to the Super Bowl. And uh, you sit down in your seat with the ticket you bought. And you look over and you're sitting down beside a person. You introduce yourself. And you kind of get the history of that person. They get the history of you. And you realize in that moment that although you are a real deal fan, this guy is a bandwagon fan. This guy's been a fan for the last two weeks when it looked like it was going well. He's that guy. Okay, now the game goes on, and and let's just say, as we're talking here, that it's the fourth quarter, there's two minutes left, your team gets the ball back, you're down by four points, and you're mounting this drive. And you stall on your own, or their 40 yards on, you're still 40 yards from a touchdown, you're down four, you've got to have a touchdown, and you've got three seconds and one play left. You drop back, the quarterback does, it's going to be a Hail Mary, right? So he throws it up in the end zone, the receiver comes down with the ball, his fingertips are just out of bounds. I'm just joking. If you're a Cowboys fan, you know what I'm talking about. But he comes down in bounds. Your team wins the Super Bowl and everyone goes nuts. You're going nuts. You're celebrating. Your bandwagon fan is going nuts. He's celebrating. And listen, for both of those two people, it is genuine celebration, isn't it? But can you see how in that moment your celebration is much different? Although both are celebrating. It's genuine celebration. The guy that's been rooting for them for two weeks, his celebration is much more shallow than your celebration that's been with them through all the ups and downs. This is suffering. Suffering is the thing that prepares you for a deeper experience of God and of joy later. See, suffering, this is the promise of the Bible. Listen to this. The promise of the Bible is that God will bottle up every single tear that you have ever cried on this planet and produce out of those tears more joy for God later. Now, I'm telling you, if you get that, does that not radically readjust the way you experience suffering? That every single tear you will ever cry is going to be bottled up joy later? This is what he's saying. In light of that, I love when an old Puritan, Thomas Brooks, who who wrote a book on Romans 8, 28, listen to what he said. I love this. He said, uh, 
Shall we be discontented at that which works for our good? Shall we complain against that, be discontented in what works for our good? What's going to be bottled up for joy later in the midst of just difficult seasons of suffering? Are we going to be discontent there? And listen to what he goes on to say. If one friend should throw a bag of money at another, and in throwing it should graze his head, he would not be troubled much, seeing that by this means he got a bag of money. So the Lord may bruise us by afflictions, but it is only to enrich us. These afflictions work for us a weight of glory. I love that imagery, that anytime you're suffering, you know what God's doing when he ordains suffering in your life? He's throwing as hard as he can at you a bag of money. And even when it grazes it, even if it breaks our arm, can't we all say thank God for the bag of money? I mean, is that not beautiful imagery? This is what suffering is. It is a bag of money that God throws at us. That even when it grazes our head, we should be able to, with Paul and with the biblical people, to rejoice in the midst of it. Can't we? If I were going to put this whole sermon in one quote, it really would have been a lot shorter sermon. Um, Here it would be. An old Baptist theologian, J.L. Dagg, says it this way. Here's the goal that I would have for you. It should fill us with joy that infinite wisdom guides the affairs of this world. Can I tell you that it really should fill us with joy to know that? That God who is infinitely wise is guiding everything. Many of its events are shrouded in darkness and mystery, and inextricable inextricable confusion sometimes seems to reign. Often wickedness prevails, and God seems to have forgotten the creatures that he has made. Our own path through life is dark and devious, and beset with difficulty and dangers. How full of comfort is the doctrine that infinite wisdom directs every event brings order out of confusion and light out of darkness, and to those who love God causes all things, whatever be their present aspect and apparent tendency, to work together for good. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.